Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew Cleek, and this is People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. I'm the Deputy Executive Director of the McSilver Institute, where, among other work, I oversee a portfolio of technical assistance programs that offer training and support to behavioral health agencies across New York State. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ashwin Vasan, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Dr. Vasan joined DOHMH as commissioner in 2022 and brings decades of experience as a primary care physician, epidemiologist, and public health expert. I wanted to speak to the commissioner about a range of topics, including how mental health specifically fits into public health overall, new models to address public mental health, as well as issues related to stigmatizing mental illness. In the midst of recent public incidents of violence and ongoing battles about the best way to treat mental illness, how can we refocus on finding solutions? Dr. Vassan is able to provide unique insights as an important leader in our healthcare system, and it is my pleasure to have him join me on this episode of People, Perspectives, and Policies. And Dr. Vassan, I'd love to just start with a general question around public health. Uh, we have done, I feel over the last decade or so, we're doing a much better job of introducing the importance of mental health into our own personal lives and getting the message out there that mental health is really important in the lives that we live. But I'd love if you could talk a little bit about kind of the role of mental health in public health and how you see mental health fitting into public health and, and where you see it now, where you think we need to go in the future and, and, and what your thoughts are on that. So first, thanks, Andy, for having me. Thanks to the McSilver Institute for putting on this podcast and uh, really grateful to be here to talk about all of this. And your leadership in New York City and beyond is 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 just so crucial, both as a thought partner, academic partner, program partner. So thank you for everything you guys are doing. One of the things that makes me so proud to be in this seat as commissioner, as health commissioner for the city, that it, it is more than just health commissioner. It's really health and mental hygiene. And we're one of the few public health departments in the country that explicitly brings those two remits together. Most states, including New York State, and most localities have their mental um, health and mental hygiene departments separate and apart, or behavioral health departments separate from their general public health and health departments. And 25 years ago or so, New York City said, this is not really reflective of lived experience, right? That the brain and the body are connected, mental health is health, and, and we're going to reform or evolve our public health agency to make sure that this is centered. So that's a really wonderful thing about New York City and makes us quite unique um, and makes this job quite unique. I think also we're at a particularly unique time where, as you say, awareness um, and understanding and maybe stigma is at the lowest levels it's been, even though it still exists, and awareness is at the highest levels it's been, and education around the personal impacts. But we're also in a societal crisis, which I think links to your question, why is this a public health issue? Because we're seeing it play out at a population level. We're seeing it play out at scale across 8.8 million New Yorkers, across um, the entire country, and frankly, the entire world. A crisis that had its antecedents in the years and decades prior to COVID, but that COVID and the traumatic impacts, the, the deep isolation and disconnection that it forced upon us really 
accelerated. And so when I think about mental health as a public health issue, I think about three major axes of that, of that idea. Number one is that it's a population health issue that's showing up in population health data, um, meaning rates of depression, anxiety, how that impacts workforce, productivity, function, disability, cost, and economic impact. It's showing up in life expectancy, whether through rates of overdoses um, or indirectly in how mental health interacts with chronic diseases, maternal mental health, and so forth. Um, and so a population health crisis, one that is showing up in data at a population level, requires policy and population level approaches, not just approaches that are atomized at the level of the individual. Um, it requires systemic approaches. So that's one. Number two is that calling mental health a public health issue means you recognize that this can't all be about treatment. As you've heard me say publicly, there aren't any amount of white coats or clinics that are gonna get us out of the crisis that we're in. And yet, sometimes the discourse focuses so much on, can I get access to care when I need it? Yep. Which is a crucial issue but it's, it's incomplete, it's an incomplete diagnosis. We need to think about upstream preventive approaches, whether it's primary prevention and preventing people from developing mental health conditions in the first place, or secondary prevention, which is people with known diagnoses and preventing them from having poor outcomes. The third axis is that if you accept that it's a population level issue and a public health issue from the perspective of prevention versus treatment, you also have to accept that it's a social issue and not just a clinical issue, and that the solutions lie as much, if not more, in our social systems, in our economic systems, as they do in our clinical systems and treatment systems. And so for me, on all of those dimensions, uh, mental health is truly a public health issue, and we're very proud, especially now, um, during my tenure and in this administration, to be centering it in the public health agenda of New York City. That's fantastic. Could you talk a little bit more more about the social piece of it? Because I mean, I think in my experience, you know, that that clinician working in a mental health clinic not only is a clinician, but they're also addressing all of those social determinants of health. Right? They're addressing food insecurity and housing, and and really, you know, all of those issues. Maybe more. You ended up in that mental health clinic, but the issues that are driving what's going on with you may be more of those social issues around the social determinants in an actual mental health diagnosable disorder. And yet the person sitting in that chair in front of you is responsible to try to solve those problems, even though sometimes they're not actually trained to do that. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about some of the more social issues as well. Yeah, happy to. And and look, my perch on this comes from many levels, but um, I'm also a practicing primary care doctor yep. and have been for more than a decade. And that really informs my view because I've been in that seat where I'm faced or sitting across from a patient who clearly has demonstrable medical issues, but the solutions are often not in my control. There is no amount of medication I could prescribe or follow up or specialist referrals that's going to address the root of their mental or social or medical uh, need, which the solutions lie in our social systems, our economic systems, safe housing, access to better nutrition, so forth. So the links are clear. Mental health is social, not only because the 
drivers are social, but the symptoms are social. Yeah. When we talk about mental health as health, the big differentiator is that when someone's having a heart attack or bleeding through injury or trauma, there is a unidirectional sense of need, empathy, I want to help. There's a set of solutions. And the ripple effects are really not, there is no ripple effect to you. Right. Right. And we, that is how we treat other human beings who are facing health crises. But when the symptoms are innately behavioral that show up in the way a person interacts with you, it's very difficult for a human being to compartmentalize that without the right training, without the right education and understanding. And it's, it's crucial that we all center people's humanity in that process because that person's behavior, maybe their language, the way they're interacting with you is a function of their illness and not, a, not necessarily a function of choice. Right. And that's really, has always been the differentiator in society, has always been underneath why we stigmatize mental illness, why we silo it from the rest of health. And we've got to break that down because that person is as much not in control of their symptoms as someone having a heart attack or someone having a stroke. They need medical, clinical, psychiatric, psychological, behavioral interventions in the same way that I need to get aspirin, statin, and a trip to the ER for someone having chest pain. And we got to get as a society to that point where we can normalize mental health. Only then will we really um, muster the kind of response and build the kinds of systems that we need. Yeah. And, and I wonder how much of that is public education and how much it, and, you know, what how, what roles we all play in that public education. Right. In, in really normalizing mental health as a public health and a, just a health condition rather than a more stigmatized condition. I think we play a huge role. And, and I have tried my best to play this role as commissioner by talking about it all the time and not just talking about it in the abstract but bringing my own family's experience, my own personal experience to bear, to say, this is normal. People go through lots of stuff. People have trauma, they have pain, they have histories, they've been through pain. It has an effect. And getting help for that and seeking counsel and seeking support is not a, a personal character flaw. It's not a fallibility. It's not a weakness or a liability. It's in fact a strength. And the more leaders that do that, the more community members that do that, the more that we can do that collectively, the more we normalize this rather than othering it, which is what we do far too often. So I think a lot of it is public education and, and through public education, normalizing what mental health means. And I think we're at a moment where that actually can take in a way that it hasn't taken in the past because everyone's been through something over the last three years that's yeah. been painful whether it's the direct loss of someone they love, direct illness of themselves, or the indirect impacts of COVID on social, economic, psychological trauma. You know, the, the recent data that came out of the census survey, 900,000 New Yorkers lost someone right. during COVID. How can we not see that as a collective trauma? It, in many ways, it's like a natural disaster or a mass casualty event where there's the impact directly of the loss and the trauma. And then there's the ripple effects over time 
And there's also the social and economic effects in the way that COVID shut down our economy, shut down our city, shut down social connection. So mass casualty effects, as we know from the research, um, mass casualty events can take decades to, to heal from, if, if ever, right? And so we need to start thinking in those long terms. So actually, I'm really glad you raised that. So I, I have 16-year-old uh, twins, um, and I know that you have children as well. And so I, and, and the last three years has really seen what, you know, I think any parent who has had children in the last three years has seen what, you know, disconnecting young people from their social systems, their social connections, you know, can really do. Um, and, you know, all, you know, kids have, have had different exposure and, and that kind of stuff. But I wonder if we could talk about prevention a little bit. Um, we've done a lot of work here at McSilver on trauma and trauma-informed care and how organizations can address trauma. But I, I would love to get your thoughts a little bit on prevention and kind of the critical periods as you see them with young people, where we as a, as a school system, as a public health system, as a mental health system, as a kid's social network can intervene to really prevent some of these more long-term uh, long-term outcomes based on trauma. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that you referenced, the, the 900,000 people have lost someone. And I think for those people, there's an acute trauma. But I also think for everyone who has, and especially young people over the last three years, you know, I, I, I talk internally about how everyone got an ace in the last three years. And so I just want to, if you could talk a little bit about prevention and what are the critical periods for young people and, and how we can address those. So some of these things don't, you know, metastasize and grow into longer term problems later on? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And I, I come at this as a parent, as you, as you mentioned, I come at it, obviously, in my role as commissioner, as a clinician as well. We've all watched our kids be suddenly dislocated from their communities. And we know that there are particular moments in time in social development, neurodevelopment, that are more crucial for those social communities than others, even though they're always crucial, which is why you're seeing really young kids be affected. You know, my four-year-old at the time was deeply impacted yeah. by being pulled out of preschool. And you're also seeing this in teens. Yep. You're seeing this in high school age kids. And so that bimodal impact that we're seeing with the raised baseline, of course, across the board for all school age kids is something that we think a lot about. It's also why a major focus of our mental health plan that we launched in May was youth mental health. Yep. And specifically bringing mental health services to the places where young people spend the most time and putting control in their hands. So number one, launching the largest digital mental health platform for high school age kids in the country for a city. That's a huge priority for us this year in 2023, getting that off the ground really creating a low touch, low barrier to entry without any sort of adult middleman brokering the equation that a child, a young person, a teen, 13 to 17 can talk to someone through text, through FaceTime, through technology that they feel digitally native to. But there has to be a continuum beyond that, right? What can we put inside schools? The work that the governor did to increase Medicaid reimbursement rates for school-based health centers and for school-based mental health centers was crucial because those reimbursement rates placed a negative pressure on those clinical services and our ability to expand them. Expanding telehealth options in schools themselves for site-based care. 
And lastly, can, making sure that those school-based centers are connected up into community um, community sites. That you know, we have to build back a system that we've never really had for our kids, and it starts by ensuring that they can get access to a trained expert to talk to when they need it, because that for them can stave off so much of the development of chronic stress and the accumulative trauma uh, that could lead to the development of a mental health condition. But make no mistake, we also have to address the conditions in communities, in families that are the drivers of that chronic stress, whether it's economic security for parents, whether it's income inequality and wealth inequality, we have to get to those roots which is why the administration and the mayor has made a priority of investing in childcare. I call that publicly mental health bonds. The work that we've done to expand childcare to vulnerable families is a mental health bond for the future. It's preventive. The expansion of summer youth employment uh, by hundreds of thousands of slots last summer might not seem like an obvious mental health intervention, but for high school age kids who need opportunity, they need a community, they need archetypes of success, that they can build on and they need networks they can pull on as they finish high school and move into the either the higher education or the job market. We have to invest in our kids. And, and so across the board, this is as much about prevention as it is building a better mental health system and intervening. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to just build on, on one of those pieces a little bit. We do a lot of work here at McSilver with the, on the use of peers. We focus mostly because of our role, we have a, a lot of uh, expertise in, in child mental health. So we focus on family and youth peers working in the system. But I know in your previous role, you know, peers are foundational to to the work of Fountain House and, and other programs like that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you see, you know, we have our kind of traditional medical doctors and social workers and psychologists, but where you see, you know, peers fitting into this system, the people who have lived experience, either as parents who have children with mental health issues or young people who've had mental health issues themselves or adults who have had more serious mental health issues as adults. I think across the three pillars of our mental health plan, overdose prevention and treatment, serious mental illness and youth, across the board, we, we think of peers as a crucial tool, not just workforce, but really crucial as a primary or complementary tool to recovery. And that's what we're ultimately talking about, right? Recovery means a lot of things for a lot of people, but when you have symptoms of a mental health condition or you have a known chronic mental illness, recovery is essential for stability and growth. Peers are a crucial component of that, whether that is in something like the clubhouse model that I uh, worked in and led for some years, peer communities, propping people up, helping them stand up through difficult times, navigate the ups and downs of living with a chronic serious mental illness, and also serving as an early warning system for crisis, or whether it's something like our relay program for overdoses that pairs people who have experienced a non-fatal overdose with a peer that has experienced a non-fatal overdose or that has a history of substance use disorder and accompanies them through their post-overdose journey in the in amongst the most vulnerable time period, where we know that the risk of having a fatal overdose after a non-fatal one is two to three times higher, especially in the first 90 days. So we think of peers as a crucial pillar and a relatively un- underinvested in pillar of our mental health workforce and our mental health systems. 
And I think it speaks to something very fundamental and foundational. I talked earlier about mental health being a social condition and a behavioral condition. That behavior can be othering, right? When, when we society has always othered people who exhibit symptoms, which manifest as behaviors that are outside of the bounds of what we as a society have historically thought of as quote unquote normal. But when you're face to face with a peer who's been through that too, and can actually model different kinds of behavior or different kinds of coping skills or different kinds of uh, a different kind of journey, then that also builds trust. Trust is the foundation of sustained engagement. And sustained engagement is the foundation of community-based recovery. And so peers are essential. Peers are essential. There is no, like I said, there's no amount of clinical care we can offer. There are no amount of hospital beds. There are no amount of crisis centers that will get us out of this crisis without a foundation of a community mental health system that we've always deserved, but never truly invested in after deinstitutionalization. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and if we could build on that a little bit and talk, and I know in your previous role at Bound House, to talk a little bit about, you know, so I've done a lot of work on, you know, billable services and Medicaid managed care and value-based payments and all these kind of like very technical, very billing oriented, you know, service oriented things. And, you know, if you look at our system, we could each name, you know, 50 acronyms for programs that provide what we would all see as traditional clinical care, right? And I guess a lot of times, especially for people with more serious mental health problems, they also tremendously benefit in their recovery process from clubhouses and other programs that aren't in the traditional kind of mental health clinical space. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. How do you see those programs fitting in our system now and what your vision would be for how you would see those kinds of programs like clubhouses and other programs like that fitting into a system in a world where, where you know, we all had the kind of mental health system that we would like? It's a great question because I think it reveals something about the limitations of our own thinking of how we build systems. We look at healthcare and we say, gosh, isn't there a lot of money in healthcare? How can we unlock it to do more in the social environment or do more to expand access to services? But with those dollars comes extraordinary constraints, extraordinary constraints in the kinds of services that can be delivered. And value-based payment is often held up as this panacea, but we've seen it hasn't panned out. The panacea hasn't panned out yet. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying, but I'm I am healthily, you know, cautious. I'm very cautious about this as a solution set because it doesn't get to the core fundamental truth that people's experience of care in the community has to be have some level of permanence and um, dynamism that reflects the reality of living. When I see patients. I see them for 15 to 30 minutes at a time. And I spend most of my time thinking about what about the 23 hours and 30 minutes that they're not in my clinic, not in front of me. What is their life like? What's their social situation like? What kind of sports do they have? Do they have enough money? Do they have food to eat? Right. And those are all things that our healthcare systems are very poorly oriented to pay for. And they're, of course, to design programs for. The other truth is that we don't just have a mental health system that's paid for through reimbursement, right? We have a pretty considerable amount of mental health care, especially for serious mental illnesses paid for through grants, right? Grant-based care through block grants to states from SAMHSA um, and otherwise. And so we got to think a little bit about 
the hybrid approach. I think there's a lot to be thought of and and maybe potential in CCBHCs, uh-huh. Certified Community Behavioral Health Centers, because it tries to remove some of the fiscal and administrative constraints that are imposed by reimbursable health care, like Medicaid, particularly Medicaid. Um, and, and in doing so, can unlock better programming, more sustained programming. When I was at Fountain House, this was one of our biggest challenges, was how do we become legible to health systems? Health systems all visited us. They said we were great, and we the clubhouse model is wonderful, but they didn't even know how to partner with us because we didn't have the payment instruments and contracting vehicles that they could. So we started with a couple of ways. Number one, we built home and community-based services yep. built from the state. We built a Medicaid care management agency. So that helped um, a little bit. But we also started working with a managed care organization on a the beginnings of a value-based contract for clubhouse services. And we got to the point by the time I left where we were talking mostly about kind of bundled per member per month yeah. or per member per annum uh, payments. But we can do better than that even. And and we have to think a little bit about measuring if we're going to take full risk on these contracts, how can we move beyond just total cost of care as the metric? We're going to win on total cost of care, right? Because clubhouses and programs like it really do reduce total cost of care by any metric of hospitalization or, um, but we also have to externalize some of those costs in terms of what's the impact of a clubhouse, being a part of a clubhouse program on homelessness and criminal justice, criminal legal system contacts. When you start to externalize the costs more, then you see, wow, this is there's actually great potential for these models well beyond their narrow savings to healthcare. Yeah. And there's actually an, there's an opportunity for cities and municipalities and states to partner with healthcare, with managed care, to sort of say, how can we quantify the total costs that would be saved across systems? And that's really, I think, the next frontier of this work. I'm so glad you raised that because I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One, nonprofits, especially nonprofits that aren't hospital, are always going to struggle taking on that level of risk, right? Because if anything goes wrong, you can really end up in lots of trouble if you're taking on total cost of care. So even though I completely agree with you that you're going to end up on the right side of it, like the the ability to take that level of risk is is really intense. And also the piece about the intersection of the systems. And, you know, we don't, we were working with Georgetown on a little bit of a project around this, but like the braided funding, because if you do a lot of really wonderful work, you may actually be saving more money on the criminal justice system involvement than you are on hospitalization. And and we never see that number, right? That doesn't get folded into the healthcare number and homelessness and all, you know, all those budgets are separate. So I, I love the idea of you raising that, you know, cities and states really should be partnering at a kind of like a holistic level with and thinking about the healthcare costs in that way because it really does all those other systems are impacted and with kids it's child welfare it's the education system it's all those kinds of things so to think through those issues i think is is really really important i'd love to shift a little bit um to just talk a little bit about stigma we have been seeing every time we turn on the news there has been a spike in you know acts of public violence and when that happens the first question that's always asked and always discussed ad nauseum in the press is, you know, what is the mental health condition of the person who ended up in this situation, whether as a perpetrator or a victim? And I, I think that while we always need to address those issues, I worry a lot about public stigmatization 
of individuals with mental illness and the perception that people who have a mental health condition are dangerous in some ways when we all know the statistics are that people with mental illness are much more likely to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator of violence. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we can navigate the stigmatization of, of mental illness when it comes to these acts of public violence. Um, and also a little bit maybe to touch on, on the toll that these acts and watching all of this on TV takes on the rest of us as well. I'm glad you're asking this question. I think a lot about this myself in my role, how to navigate and walk this line, because number one, you said it, people living with mental illness, untreated serious mental illness, are far more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators of violence. And yet our level of outrage doesn't seem to match that reality um, necessarily. I also think that we have to be really mindful about interrogating and indicting a system when the circumstances of any tragedy also have a set of facts and circumstances that demand their own interrogation for all parties involved. And so I think that gets really conflated in the public's mind because we have a long history in this city, in this country of conflating what we see. And this gets back to my point about behavioral health and the fact that mental health is largely behavioral symptoms. It gets conflated with this wider sense of public safety, the, the safety that the public feels. I don't feel safe. It must be because of this. I don't feel comfortable. It must be because of what I'm seeing. And I think at all times, I try to, number one, uplift the humanity of people first. These are human beings. And this last couple of weeks, but even last year, um, the tragedy with Michelle Goh uh, on the subway, the tragedies upon tragedies that have befallen our city uh, in years past, they're extraordinarily painful. And they're particularly painful when you're in jobs like mine, where you feel this weight and responsibility. Yeah. I know that everyone is feeling this pain across this administration um, right now. And so I think it's essential that we always start and end with that humanity because these are every single one of these incidents is a tragedy. No one deserves to lose their life with or from an untreated mental illness. So I, I, I feel very strongly about that. I don't have a simple solution because I do think it's going to, I think we all have to reckon with ourselves and our own sense of how we humanize or dehumanize other people. And there are associations with mental illness for that. There are associations with race and gender as well, right? Yep. We have to have some serious conversations with ourselves and as a society about, are we willing to continue to dehumanize people on those bases? And whether our reactions to situations in the news or tragedies on the streets, whether those are really not about uplifting people's humanity at all, and they're all about, how do I feel about this? How can I get this out of sight and out of mind? And that's been, frankly, characteristic of our response to mental illness 
for centuries, right? Put them in institutions, yep. get them off the streets, get them out of my sight. They make me feel unsafe. These are all what stews in the public consciousness. That's just a fundamentally dehumanizing point of view. And until we're willing to say that publicly, you know, I think we're going to continually um, face challenges. Now, I am very proud that we've made this a priority from the beginning. The mayor's made this a priority on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. The moment he stepped into office, the first thing he did with the subway outreach program. And there's a lot to admire in that kind of commitment for an issue where we're not seeing any other leadership except from mayors. We're not seeing anyone from the federal government talk about serious mental illness. We're, we're glad to have the governor also talking about serious mental illness as well. But we need real leadership on this issue. And that leadership means commitment and not looking away. Not looking away also puts you up close and personal with the stubborn intergenerational disinvestment in our mental health systems that we're now reaping. I think that's an important point that we need to constantly be acknowledging that while we did the right thing in you know, rapidly deinstitutionalizing, that we did not follow through on the promise to reinvest that in the community system. And I think you see it across the country. I, I grew up in California. We see it there. Obviously, you know, see these issues in New York as well. Um, I'd like to end on a positive note. We've ha all had a rough couple years. You're a parent. I'm a parent. We talk to our kids all the time. We have to give them hope. And I'd love to just hear from you. Um, what makes you hopeful? I'm really hopeful for the future because of what you started with, how mental health is being centered in the public consciousness, in public health, in public policy, and frankly, has become a kitchen table issue, to use that old moniker. It's a kitchen table issue, and it's not going anywhere. It's on everyone's mind. It's going to become, and it already is to an extent, a voting issue. So we're going to see how elected officials get judged on the basis of their presence or absence of a point of view on mental health. It's also like a deeply connected issue in the sense that in, a, in, a, in an era of just really foundational and deep polarization and schisms in our society, it's actually one of those issues that you're seeing real bipartisan cooperation. To the extent that there is a world of bipartisanship still out there, <laughs> you're actually seeing it right. in the Senate bills and the and the bills that are being put up, the spending authorization, the um, the folks who are standing with the president and federal authorities as they invest into mental health. So I'm optimistic that this is finally, finally getting the attention that it has needed for you know, the better part of four to five decades or more, you know, we've needed this kind of public conversation around mental health. And we've had people try. John F. Kennedy tried. Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter tried. Um, others have tried. But it hasn't taken. And now it's taking. And I think COVID is a tipping point or has been a tipping point for the public consciousness. It, it's no longer acceptable to look away from mental health as an issue or even to look away from our own mental health as individuals or that of our families. And so I'm really optimistic about the future, but I think the next few years are critical. What choices do we make? Not just choices about what we spend on and what policies to try out, 
But who do we elect into office who's willing to back these sorts of policies and to build the mental health system that we've always needed? Those are going to be real choices that the American public needs to make. And um, I'm optimistic that we have leaders willing to do that. Certainly the president has done more for mental health than any of his recent predecessors um, in terms of investment and leadership. So I'm really optimistic. I think there are a number of positive trends uh, coming from every level of government on this issue, but we have a lot of work to do and we're up against, as I've mentioned, a system that has been disinvested in for decades. And so it's not gonna happen overnight, but I think we have the right um, momentum. That's fantastic. So I want to just say thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, It's really been a pleasure getting to hear your thoughts and getting to know you a little bit. I wish you luck uh, in all your work um, in one of the most important jobs in this city. And uh, thank you again for taking the time to join today. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and especially to have me to talk about uh, something near and dear to my heart. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. To learn more about the Institute, please visit mcsilver.nyu.edu. Thank you for listening.